if you have your Bibles with you, friends, turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 to 34. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 21 to 34. Listen now for the Word of God. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out, drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So, Father, thank you again so much for allowing us to gather together to worship as sisters and brothers Wherever we may be in our relationship and journey with you, we pray today that we would have an encounter with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That power that would heal, that would exercise, that would bring restoration, that ultimately would bring us closer to you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight and all God's people said, amen. As you just heard, there's a lot of information here on this passage. And I know that you're studying through the Gospel of Mark. Well, I'm not going to spend time introducing kind of the big picture of the Gospel of Mark because you've already done this. But as you've heard, there's probably numerous directions that we can go in this passage. But I want to focus on three things, and there are actually three big things. So let me give you a roadmap of how we'll spend our time together. There's three questions I want you to wrestle with me about this passage. Here it is. Number one, what does it mean to live with authority? That word pops up on a couple of occasions in our passage. If Jesus is our Lord and Savior and he is one with authority, what does it mean for us then to live with authority? Number two, we want to wrestle with this question, how do we make sense of demons and spirits? you welcome. And then number three, what is the significance that Jesus cared about people's spiritual needs and their physical needs? Those are the three things that we'll tackle today in our sermon. So let's dive right into it. What does it mean 
to live with authority. Now, it's important for us to frame this question in the right context. It's probably very, very dangerous if this is the first and the only question that you're asking in regards to authority. Because for us, as followers of Jesus, our authority doesn't come on our own merit. It comes because we follow Jesus, who is Lord and Savior. That's the reason why in this passage here, it makes a point that as people were looking, observing, perceiving, analyzing Jesus, they begin to realize that this person is unique and different. He comes and he teaches with authority. Now, you should also know that during this time, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of self-professing experts, gurus, philosophers, teachers, and even self-professing messiahs. Why? Because everybody wanted that kind of power. There were a lot of groups that gathered together trying to elevate certain people. There were rumors that this person and that person and this person from that region might be the new messiah. So when Jesus comes and he begins to teach with authority, people are interested, they're piqued, they're somewhat drawn to this person. They don't quite know yet that this man is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. But the reason why there is an element of authority is because there is a juxtaposition going on, a comparison. Here's Jesus, and then you've got teachers of the law. I'm assuming it's the Pharisees, it might be members of the Sanhedrin. These are men that have memorized the Torah, they understand uh, the Pentateuch, they understand rules and codes and regulations, they have some form of respect, they have power and privilege, but what ends up happening is that Pharisees, teachers of the law, they were at one point historically in Jewish culture very, very important. They were important because when the temple was disbanded, they realized they needed spiritual formation leaders, religious leaders like pastors to go out into the streets, into the community for their rule of life, to be practiced and taught and embodied. Does that make sense? So people no longer came to the temple because it was disbanded and they chose to realize spiritual formation, rule of life, worship of God is so important, we've got to send these leaders out. And they did. But after a while, these religious leaders, they got somewhat enticed and seduced by the fact that people began to give them so much elevation, power and privilege and now it was all about preservation. How do we preserve what we have? And it became more about rules and codes and about status and power rather than the work of God for the glory of God so that people might be drawn to the kingdom of God. And so Jesus comes and he says, I'm not playing your game. The Pharisees wanted him to be part of their crew. Other religious groups wanted to entice Jesus, come join us so that we would be all powerful. We can do so much. And Jesus 
simply says, I'm not here to play your game. The kingdom that he's trying to speak about is not human power, religious power, denominational power, tribal power. He's speaking about the kingdom of God. And here's the thing. If you're somewhat confused about the the terminology kingdom of God, trust me, over the gospel of Mark, you're going to hear it again and again, and there'll be dedicated teachings on the kingdom of God. So let me break it down again. People had confidence in man, confidence in religion, confidence in law, and Jesus is speaking about this imagination of the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the flourishing of God, the vision of God. Now, what does that mean for you as a church? These three questions, I feel like the Holy Spirit encouraging me to share these as words of encouragement for you as a congregation and perhaps even for you as individuals. What does that mean for your church? It means that we need to remind ourselves as a body of believers that our church is never rooted or founded on flash, on talent, on charisma, or any human process. That as you've moved into this amazing, beautiful church, which is great, we should celebrate God's goodness, but as someone who pastored in Seattle, the largest Protestant building in Seattle, large congregation, large budget, all of these things, It's amazing how in very small and subtle ways, our confidence becomes our version of horses and chariots. Our confidence becomes more about our might or by our power. And I'm convinced that in the church today, we need less spotlights and fog lights and formulas and simply more humility and dependence on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So one of the most profound ways that you can support and love your church is to pray for that spirit of humility for your pastors and your elders. And I'm not suggesting that they're not humble, but in small and subtle ways, it's amazing. It's like our own life. After a while, when you have a car, you have a house, you have an apartment, you have a nice leather couch, you've got a mortgage, you've got these things. After a while, we begin to be more obsessed by the gifts rather than the giver of gifts. Oh, it happens. In a capitalistic society, we can be so enamored by gifts that we forget the giver. So then where does that authority come from for us as individuals? Well, again, going back to the first comment, our authority comes from Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, as heirs of Jesus, we can claim with humility that authority in our lives. That's what it means to be heirs of God's throne. So imagine, you know, I I love sports and I love playing basketball. Our whole motto in our family is Jesus is Lord and ball is life. That's our motto in our family. 
All right, and so I grew up in San Francisco, so I remember the days of Hardaway and Mitch Richmond and Chris Mullen. I remember those days. But just imagine if you were playing three-on-three basketball, right? And I love my double crossover move, the Hezzies. But imagine if we're playing three-on-three, and on my team, I'm playing with Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, right? Now, in Seattle, they call me Asian Clay, just FYI. They call me Asian Clay. But just imagine if we're playing three on three and you forget that on your team is Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. So we're operating, for many of us, using the authority of earthly realm. Just my degree. I'm just here with my expertise, my human connections, my LinkedIn profile. And again, I'm not saying that those things don't have a place. Don't forget that we worship the Lord of Lords and the one true God, the Alpha and the Omega, know who you serve. So let me make the connection then. In addition to your rule of life, there are questions that I always ask myself. I have to ask myself for grounding and rootedness. And maybe another time in the future, I'll share more, but I, I took on this new role. I, I still lead one day's wages in which your church generously supports, but I'm also in this role at Bread for the World, and it is challenging. A, a meeting with members of Congress and the administration and meeting with UN officials, and oftentimes I feel like there's just a seduction of power and imposter syndrome that I wrestle with. So these questions I ask every single day, and I want to share them with you, because I think they help, in addition to your rule of life, a sense of where does my authority come from? Here it is, faithfulness in obedience in how we answer and embody three questions. Number one, who do you belong to? Identity. In a world today that are constantly trying to seduce people into pledging your allegiance to that company, to that political group, to that person, you need to understand the most important question is, who do you belong to? The second question is, who do you serve? The question of lordship. I'm so grateful that God has placed you in different diverse spaces and places around San Francisco and the Bay Area. We're called to be ambassadors, to bear witness. Our ultimate calling isn't to pledge our allegiance to companies, to tribes, to political groups, and the list goes on. And the third thing is, what are you about? What are your values? What's your mission? That's where we get our authority. Let's jump to the second question. How do we make sense of demons and demonic spirits? Now, Let's just name it. It's an uncomfortable, weird topic. And the reason why it's uncomfortable and weird is because as human beings, particularly byproducts of the Western world, especially in the West Coast, which is the best coast, just putting it out there, 
Some of you just checked out of my sermon. (laughs) Stay here. But especially in the West, there is an affinity. There's kind of an inclination towards what? Intellectual prowess. So in Seattle, we're always telling ourselves we're the smartest city in America. By data and science, Seattle has the most number of people with like college and advanced degrees as well. Now, there's good things, but there's also challenging things. In our minds, the essence of humanism is we will think our way out of everything. So if we can't understand it, if we can't analyze it or rationalize it, intellectualize it, it's it's weird. For that reason, sometimes people look at Christianity and go, what, they sing in mornings together? That's weird. You know, in the early church, one of the biggest rumors of the church was what? They were cannibals. Why that rumor? Because they heard teaching that they gathered together to eat of the body of Christ and to drink his blood. They can't understand it. For that reason, anything that involves demons or demonic spirits or angels and angelic spirits, it's weird. We can't understand it, so our tendency is to gloss over it. But I want you to know that while it's not my job or my expertise to teach you all things on spirits and angels and demons, the reason why I absolutely, wholeheartedly believe in spirits and demons and angels is because it's all over the Bible. Ephesians tells us in chapter 6, verse 12, that Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So let me at least, for the sake of trying to honor this passage, explain to you three big mistakes that we can make about demons and demonic spirits. Three things, okay? Not here to freak you out, but there's three things. Mistake number one is that we altogether ignore it, dismiss it, don't believe in it. It's naive, it's ignorant. If I can be candid, it's dumb. It's not biblical. So we just altogether ignore that reality so we don't pray about it, we don't study about it, we don't ask more to learn about these things. We ignore it altogether. That's mistake number one. The second mistake that we can make is the complete opposite of the first one. We elevate it so much that we cower in fear on all conversations about demons and demonic spirits. Oh, I'm scared. If I were to ask you right now, what is the opposite or who is the opposite of God? I would contend that most Christians would say that the opposite of God is Satan. And I want you to know you would be 100% and even dangerously wrong. Let me share with you the wisdom of C.S. Lewis. 
C.S. Lewis, in a talk that he was giving at Magdalene College on July 5th, 1941, in Oxford, he was speaking, trying to speak to these like British intellectuals about angels and demons. And this is what he had to say about these mistakes. There is no uncreated being except God. God has no opposite. The proper question is whether I believe in devils, I do. That is to say, I believe in angels, and I believe that some of these, by the abuse of their free will, have become enemies to God. Satan, the leader or dictator of devils, is the opposite, not of God, but of Michael. So in other words, you got to get this. There is only one God. There is no opposite. Therefore, do not treat demonic spirits as opposites of God where we cower in fear. So when we speak about authority, I am suggesting to you, based upon Scripture, that as Christians, yes, imperfect and fallen, but by the grace of Jesus, it would not be nonsensical to come and speak with authority even to demonic spirits. This is really important. Now, this is a crazy word of encouragement. I'm just going to say it. Why? Because it's the second service. And you can just say it. One of my prayers for your church is that you would see a manifestation of demonic spirits within your church. Why? Here's why. Because when God and the gospel and the holiness of God begins to manifest itself in a church, in a person, in a family. You know what happens? What we just read. Impure spirits begin to wrestle in that space. I used to freak out. Why? Because I'm an intellectual Western Christian. I used to freak out the first few times these things happened in church. Like, ah, what's going on? Little did I know they were reasons to rejoice. Just don't forget your authority. Here's mistake number three when it comes to demonic spirits or demons. It is very possible to know, understand, rationalize, intellectualize. There's a difference between knowing and worshiping Jesus. You find it interesting that you have all of these people present in these stories, and actually they don't yet quite know that Jesus is the Messiah. They think he's the newest, hip, coolest teacher. Ooh, it's a new teaching with authority. Social media, capture these things, hashtag Jesus is the new cool. It's only the demonic spirit that recognizes that Jesus is the Son of God. But there's a difference between recognizing and surrendering, submitting, worshiping in obedience to Jesus. Friends, we don't need, and here's the thing, I'm speaking to myself, 
I love the fact that God created me with all of my senses, my emotions, my feelings. I also love my brain. And my personal tendency is to try to understand things with my God. So I don't want to knock it at all. But I have come to realize, especially in the last decade and maybe living in Seattle and ministering there, that there's so much that you can learn about God and there is a difference between worshiping Jesus. And I think that's a word for like all of the Bay Area. The temptation to go beyond that just knowing and understanding, theologizing, to know that truth is not just merely propositional, but truth is personal, embodied in the person of Jesus. He is who he says he is. He will accomplish what he says he will accomplish. He is worthy to be worshipped. So here's the third thing that we can learn from our story, and it's this question here. The question that we should wrestle with is, what is the significance that Jesus cared about people's spiritual needs and their physical needs? Well, the significance is beautiful. It is fragrant. It is transformative. And I pray that it continues to deepen your church and to deepen you as a person. The reason why it matters is because Jesus, I want you to realize that everything that Jesus does has a significance. Every word that he says has significance. Every question that he asks has significance and value. Every step that he takes has value and significance. I'll give you an example if I've lost you. When Jesus chooses to walk through Samaria in John chapter 4, it was probably one of his greatest sermons. Because literally in his walking, he was giving us a glimpse of the kingdom of God, an imagination of the kingdom of God. People who have been so boxed in by the teachings of the time, by victimization, by oppression, by whatever it might be. And Jesus was trying every word, every question, every teaching, every parable, every step, every healing, every miracle, giving them a vision of the kingdom of God. So what is he teaching us in both the spiritual needs and the physical needs is this. In the kingdom of God, Jesus cares about both the internal and external. Jesus is Lord over your soul and over this earth. He cares about people's spiritual needs and their physical needs. In other words, Jesus cares about feeding people the word of God because he is the bread of life. But he also cares about their physical hunger. In John chapter 6, the feeding of the multitudes, the thousands of people, in the gospel version of that story, there's a verse that simply says, Jesus saw the people and had compassion on them. Why? Because he knew they were hungry. So the kingdom of God, the whole gospel, cares, yes, about one's spiritual life, but don't reduce spiritual life to just Sunday at worship, small group, quiet time, and that's it. In other words, friends, the kingdom of God 
isn't merely about a ticket to heaven. It didn't dawn on me until later during Holy Week that Jesus didn't just enter Jerusalem and go straight to the cross in between. He confronted corruption and hypocrisy, overturned tables, healed the blind and sick, hosted a meal for his imperfect friends, washed 30 feet. The kingdom of God is about life on earth as well as eternity in heaven. Man, I know you're not all Pentecostals, but that was a good time to say amen. The reason why I bring this up, friends, is because increasingly, especially in the past decade where there's lots of battles of narratives, but in the last 10 years, I have been asked this question that I think is an incredibly dangerous question. I've been asked this question, they'll say, Pastor Eugene, what's more important, evangelism or justice? And I'm like, what? what? What do you mean what's more important? Friends, the great commission and the great commandment are not competing commands. They make up the beautiful whole gospel, which gives us a glimpse of the kingdom of God. So when I was 18, I came to faith, said yes to Jesus, following Jesus. And so as a college student at UC Davis, we would come out to San Francisco, uh, you know, once a quarter or something to do evangelism. And we would come out to Market Street, where they had a store called Emporium many, many years ago. Many of you weren't even born back then. And so we would do this evangelism, and I look back and I think about the danger of going to someone and saying, looking at their eyes, this person who is struggling on the streets, and I know that homelessness is incredibly complex, so I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but I would look at this homeless person and ask, excuse me, sir, excuse me, sir, would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Smile. And if they said no, I moved on. The reason why I cite that as dangerous is because Never, not even once in my imagination did I consider or think about the possibility. I wonder if he or she is hungry. I love the wisdom of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who speaks about this. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says, quote, a religion true to its nature must also be concerned about man's social condition. Any religion that professes to be concerned with the souls of men and is not concerned with the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a dry-as-dust religion. That's his poetic way of what James teaches us. Faith without works is dead. Evangelism, justice. I pray that as a church, 
in a city like San Francisco, in a marketplace of ideas, that we would never grow timid in sharing the good news that we believe Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, is it hard? Of course it's hard. Is it challenging? Of course it's challenging. But may we never grow weary or timid or live in a spirit of fear in sharing this good news that Jesus is Lord and Savior. But friends, if you believe that in itself is the whole gospel, you're missing out on another portion here where Jesus cares about our souls. He cares that we come to know him. But Jesus also cares about collective human flourishing. I believe he cares about those who are ill and sick. I believe that Jesus cares about justice and reconciliation. I believe that he cares about black and brown and indigenous bodies. I believe he cares about migrants and immigrants. I believe that Jesus cares about those who experience hunger and poverty. I believe that even in a society that does not quite know how to speak about this, God cares about the unborn. I, I know some of you are just checking out. Just stay with me. We've been so conditioned to think along political lines. And this whole sermon is really about a new imagination of the kingdom of God. Evangelism, justice, the whole gospel. The healing of the person who's demon-possessed and the physical healing of their bodies. Now, let me just share this one thing, and then we'll wrap up our time. I think most of us here would agree that if we only emphasize evangelism without the other things, there's a danger to this. But I also want you to know, because I also see a lot of Christians, particularly younger Christians, in urban settings, Go on the opposite pendulum, and we're talking about justice and justice. And here's the thing. Obviously, I'm not knocking justice. Justice is a beautiful thing, but you need to realize why we're pursuing justice. Because justice matters to God. As Christians, we pursue that which matters to our Jesus. You forget our why. Even good things can grow to become idolatrous. So yes, even justice can grow to become idolatrous. In other words, I want you to realize we don't worship justice, we worship a just God. That, that distinction makes all the difference and therefore we choose to engage in the messiness and the muddiness and the mireness of pursuing justice here on earth. Both matter to Jesus. If there was ever an expert on Jesus, if there was ever someone that deserved an honorary degree on Jesus, if there was anyone that could put into their LinkedIn profile, expert of Jesus, I baptize Jesus, there's only one person. That's John the baptizer. This guy spent years preparing the way for Jesus. 
And so I find it incredibly provocative that near the end of his life, when John the baptizer is in jail, he's having an existential moment, he tells his disciples to go to Jesus while he's in jail. He knows he's going to die soon. He tells his disciple to go to Jesus to ask this ridiculous question. It goes like this. Go ask Jesus, are you the one or shall we wait for another? You get where I'm going with this? He has doubts. He's not sure that Jesus is actually the one. You know, and the reason why is because even John the baptizer, who Jesus said is the greatest among humans, John the baptizer had a box, and Jesus was in that box. John the baptizer, I suspect, imagined that, John, that Jesus would be doing what he was doing, but on a bigger scale. And Jesus, in response to the question, tells the disciples, this is before texting and social media, go back to John the baptizer, Luke chapter 7, verse 22, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. The kingdom of God. May reality San Francisco continue to pursue these things. Friends, can you just rise to your feet at this time?